0: Hello and welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and, this week, bodies. Each week, you get a pair of feminists talking about what we cannot get off of our minds. I'm Shannon Paulus, Slate's science and health editor. It's the new year, and many Americans are starting up diet and exercise regimens with the hope of getting fitter and losing weight. Many, many many of them will fail, especially in the long term. Not because people are lazy or not doing the right exercises or not eating the right things, but because weight loss is incredibly hard. We all kind of know that, and yet it flies in the face of so much cultural messaging around weight and around fitness that if you just quote-unquote take care of yourself you'll look a certain way, and that looking a certain way will also be better for your body, and that if fat people don't resolve to lose weight, if fat people just exist, they're glorifying obesity. That is all wrong. We're going to explore why it's wrong today when I'm joined by Aubrey Gordon. Aubrey is the host of the popular podcast, Maintenance Phase, which takes a critical look at the wellness industry. She's also the author of two books, including one that's out this week. It's called You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. After the break, Aubrey and I are gonna get into the noxious idea that healthier is always better, why the practice of debunking myths can be so frustrating, and the problem with ad campaigns for products like soap But try to be more inclusive. I hope you'll keep listening.
1: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
0: Aubrey, welcome to the waves. Shannon, thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. We're so excited to have you here. Um, We're talking, of course, about your new book. But I wanted to start off by asking you to tell listeners how you started writing about fatness on the Internet. This has not always been your job.
2: No, no. I spent about a dozen years as a community organizer um, working on what uh, my best friend and I call a popularizing unpopular issues. So we worked on a bunch of LGBT issues, we worked on immigration, we worked on voting rights, a bunch of things that people didn't like at the time, but they've uh, come around on a little more since, which is good. In that space, I found that despite having a really wonderful community of queer people and feminists and people who were dedicated to racial justice, uh, and people who were dedicated to social justice broadly, that many of them were sort of astonishingly regressive on fat stuff. The words that they would use to describe fat people were things like personal responsibility and genuinely like bootstraps and like all of these like pretty hard left people that I was spending a lot of time with would get weirdly conservative when it came to fatness. If you don't like the way you're treated, just lose weight. Just put a little muscle into it. You know, it's just calories in calories out. You just got to do the, do the work and you'll get there. Um, which is the kind of upwardly mobile kind of, uh, narrative that they would absolutely question on almost any other issue, right? Um, So I started writing, uh, the first thing that I wrote was a letter to a friend who I got into a disagreement with about body stuff. Um, She was talking about her own Uh, experience with her negative body image um, as a thin person. And I was talking about my experience of sort of external discrimination and bias as a fat person. Um, And we just couldn't quite see eye to eye. We didn't, you know, it wasn't a contentious disagreement, but we didn't quite, you know, get there and meet each other. So I wrote her a letter and sent it to a friend to make sure I wasn't being a total jerk Uh, And he looked it over and said, you know, I think there are some other people who could stand to read this and told me about Medium, which was a place that I could post it. I told him I wanted to post it anonymously if I posted it more broadly, which was his suggestion. And I posted that letter and uh, it got, I don't know, 30 or 40,000 reads in the first week or something like it was just really astronomical. So I spent four or five years writing totally anonymously um, about what it's like to be a very fat person in the U.S.
0: I can see why you posted that initial letter anonymously. Um, but pretty quickly, I think you were writing itself Magazine. So for a formal audience, why did you keep being anonymous for, for several years after that?
2: Part of it was that I had a job, and I knew the politics of the people that I worked with. And I knew that if I wanted to build coalitions in the way that my job required of me, I needed to be quieter about this thing. Unless it was the issue, I couldn't let it stand in the way of other work that needed to happen. Um, And Uh, The other part that came pretty quickly within a few months of starting to write, uh, I started to get death threats and people who were sort of tracking where I was. And anytime I mentioned a location, they would email me and that kind of thing. So I was just like, I'm just going to stay anonymous (laughs) until that situation blows over. Then when I um, published my my first book, which was my last book uh, in 2020, it became real clear that it's going to be real hard to do a book tour if nobody can see your face. It's going to be real hard to do media if nobody can know your name. Um, and over time, it just became more trouble to carry around this sort of big, cumbersome anonymity um, than it did to just, you know, take some precautionary steps and go unanonymous.
0: So your latest book is all about myth-busting, and I found the intro to the book really interesting because you actually make a little case against myth-busting before you get into, you know, 200-plus pages of myth-busting, um, and I, I kind of consider maintenance phase a myth-busting podcast. I don't know if you do. So what is wrong with myth busting in your view? And why did you decide to write a whole book about myth busting anyway?
2: Yeah, it's a really tricky relationship. I feel like as a community organizer, anybody else who has done any kind of work to try and change private or public policy or change people's minds or open them up on different issues, kind of knows on some level that a bunch of hard facts. As much as we like to cling to this very Enlightenment era idea that we're all persuaded by facts and that's it, we've kind of known for a long time in um, political research world that like that's not actually what changes people's minds. People don't just dispassionately look at a bunch of facts and figures and go, well, you've made the case. Our borders should be open, right? Like that's not... (laughs) That's not how people work, right? (laughs) Um, What changes people's minds are stories and what sort of opens them up are stories. Um, But we're also at this place on um, things related to being a fat person where the number of people who are willing to be vocal uh, around fatness and in defense of fat people and in support of fat people is dramatically smaller than it is on any number of issues that have been sort of mainstreamed, certainly on the left, right? Um, And part of the reason for that is that a lot of folks who want to speak up about it don't feel like they actually know their stuff enough to be confident enough to speak up about it. So even though myth busting is sort of this fraught activity, it also really matters for people who want to be supportive of the issue Uh, to feel like they've got their facts behind them, to feel like they've got their ducks in a row, and to feel like they can sort of take what comes to them. And usually what comes to them is not like, prove your history. And if it is... That's probably not a person who's like super gettable, frankly.
0: Mythbusting not always the most effective strategy to change hearts and minds directly. But if you myth bust to people who are then gonna go out there and talk to their families and say, like, actually, like it makes me really uncomfortable when you comment on my weight that way or like, actually it makes me really uncomfortable when you comment on, you know, like my friend's weight that way, like here here are some things i learned like maybe you can combine a little bit of the the factual stuff with like the emotional personal appeal stuff is that right
2: absolutely and again it just feels like most of us when we speak about any kind of sort of social or political issue Uh, take the approach of like cramming for a test. Like I can't talk about this tax policy or this immigration policy until I know every single thing about it as if we're going to get up at podiums and be in a debate with like your uncle at the holidays or whatever, right? Um, And generally that's not how that happens, right? Like generally we end up in conversations that are sort of way muddier than that. They're way more lasting than that. And they take more time than just like, you know, we also sort of have this pretty unrealistic expectation that um, if we do the conversation right, someone will change their entire viewpoint in one conversation, which is also not totally how people work. It usually takes us years to grow on an issue. Um, So giving folks sort of Um, stronger histories, better data, all of that kind of stuff so that they feel confident enough to tell their own story and to speak their own truths on this issue feels really, really important to me.
0: The book is crammed with facts. Um, You go through studies, you quote doctors, you quote activists, it has history in it. But one thing I found really interesting is that at the end of each chapter, you have a list of questions. um, And There are discussion questions that people can use in groups. And there are also questions that people can use to just interrogate their own biases. Um, Could you expand a little on why including those was important?
2: So this is the thing that I did on Twitter for a long time is I would (laughs) write a thread and then turn off the comments and be like, Don't post your answers. If you post your answers, you're going to hurt the feelings of a lot of people who are reading your stuff. These are questions to get really honest with yourself about. And there are things like, um, you know, one of the things that we hear really, really constantly about fat people is uh, a fat person will set a boundary and say, I don't actually want to talk about diets with you, or I don't actually want to talk about exercise, or I'm not trying to lose weight or whatever. And the response overwhelmingly um, from people who are not fat is, well, I'm doing it for you. Why aren't you grateful? I'm just concerned about you. Which, first of all, I would say just on its face is like kind of bananas. I wouldn't, if someone told me that I had double parked in front of their car and they needed me to move my car, I wouldn't be like, I'm doing it for you. Why aren't you grateful? Right? Like <laughs> that person asked something of me, right? And I can just do right. it or not do it. But like- It's a weird spin to put on that. Um, So there are questions in the book that are things like, you know, do you try and uh, take down someone's health history before you decide how to treat them? Do you think someone's boundaries should be changed based on whether or not they are disabled or you think they're disabled? Right? Um, Do you think that... uh, Any sort of daily activities that fat people do could be considered glorifying obesity. Why do you think that? What does it mean to glorify obesity, right? like Those kinds of questions to really lead folks through some of their own thinking, because I think quite a bit of the most anti-fat stuff uh, that I hear, as on, again, many, many, many issues, just really falls apart if you spend 10 to 15 seconds thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, uh, and I, and I think quite a bit of the, you know, health concern trolling falls under that category as well. Like it doesn't make people healthier if you yell at them when they tell you to stop yelling at them, right? Like that doesn't, that's not like a health promoting behavior, right?
0: Like we're good. Yeah. We don't, we don't yell at people for other unhealthy behaviors in the same way, or we don't yell at, I guess we should, I should say we don't yell at thin people for unhealthy behaviors.
2: Yes, absolutely. There's like, uh, Who gets yelled at is a really uh, different and rich (laughs) sort of conversation for sure. But like, yeah, generally speaking, if a thin person takes a picture of themselves eating pizza, you know, on occasion, someone will go, you may want to think about that. But that's about as bad as it gets. If a fat person takes a picture of themselves glorifying obesity, (laughs) excuse me, I just skipped right to the punchline, takes a picture of them glorifying obesity by eating a piece of pizza. (laughs) Um, You know, we'll get comments like you are glorifying obesity, or in one case, I got one that said, you've got blood on your hands for taking a picture of myself eating something. And I was oh like, my wow! God.
0: wow, we just went to
2: 1,000 on that scale. Got it.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. To, to rephrase my initial comment. Right. So thin people, thin people are not yelled at for eating pizza or having dessert. It might be like, wow, good for you. <laughs> like Totally.
2: You I love a girl that. who can <laughs> eat. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: We're going to take a break here. If you want to hear even more from Aubrey and myself, check out our Slate Plus segment. I asked Aubrey for her thoughts on the latest miracle weight loss drug, Ozempic. Miracle is in big scare quotes there, by the way. And if you're not a member, please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, Slate Money, and, of course, this one. To learn more, go to slate.com thewavesplus. If you could get this book into anyone's hands, who who would you hope is reading it?
2: I mean, I think anybody who self-selects in, come on down. I'm so thrilled. My hope is that this is a book that makes its way into the hands of kids of moms they think are unmovable. That's my hope. I think when it comes to sort of body image and uh, body size and sort of, you know, the experience of moving through the world as a fat person... Uh, we sort of exist in a cultural script that tells us that any fat kids are the result of bad parenting. As a result, a lot of parents put a ton of pressure on their kids to lose weight and a ton of pressure on themselves to have thin kids, which their kids may or may not have been, right? Um, and what that means in the long term is if you have a parent who's been pressuring you to change for your whole life, that really takes a toll On the relationship, right? Like that really, really takes a toll on the relationship. And my hope is that, particularly if you've got parents or family members or loved ones who are, you know, really, really stuck on some really old timey anti fat stuff, my hope is that those are the folks who pick this one up and use it to, you know, um, strengthen their own standpoint in those conversations with their families and friends and loved ones.
0: Yeah, and talking about like that that emotional relationship, that story that can really change hearts and minds. Like if you're a kid with parents who love you and who are just like doing the best with the shitty tools that they have been given throughout their lives by society, that's like, it seems like if anywhere is going to make movement on this issue, that's like one of the, the good place.
2: That's my parents, man. That's absolutely the story of my parents. Like, both of them are like deeply lovely, thoughtful people who were raising kids in the 1980s and 90s at the peak of like deep, weird, low-fat diet stuff at the height of Olestra, at the height of Weight Watchers, all of that kind of stuff. And we've now gotten to the point where I was over at my dad's house the other day and someone brought up the BMI and my dad just sort of barked at him, that was invented by a mathematician and an astronomer. He wasn't a doctor. I was like, oh, my dad's (laughs) on board. We got them. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> it's like totally amazing, right? That's my hope is that more and more folks are able to, you know, take on those conversations in their own time, in their own way, and move more folks forward. And over time, folks will get there, you know? It won't be a single conversation, but folks will get there.
0: So I wanted to dive into one of the myths you talk about in the book. Um the myth goes Body Positivity is about feeling better about yourself as long as you're happy and healthy. And you start off that chapter by talking about body positivity's roots in the fat acceptance movement, uh, the work that Black women did several decades ago uh, to not feel good about themselves, but to get basic human respect um, out there in the world. And folks did that ends in the 60s, where people would gather in public places and protest discrimination, and you trace those movements all the way up to 2004 when Dove launched the Real Beauty campaign. And I remember watching these ads in a school assembly and there's like the, the one that i remember the most clearly is like a very conventionally attractive white woman being photoshopped like to the point of unrecognizability and it was supposed to clue us in on the fact that retouching happens and and you should feel good about yourself anyway because you're you're beautiful and i'm wondering if you could just answer the question the basic question of like okay well like this is a corporation trying to sell me something. The lady in the ad is pretty, like maybe you're teaching 14-year-olds like something basic about the world, but like, you know, they should understand that retouching happens. What's so bad about that?
2: I don't think it's necessarily like the worst thing that has happened in human history, right? But I do think there's some, you know, for a campaign that builds itself as being all about inclusion. It was a surprisingly exclusive campaign, right? That like, in order to be retouched, you have to first be photographed. I am a person who has been at the high end of plus sizes since high school. No one is taking my picture unless I tell them to. And then no one is posting that picture anywhere, right? So retouching absolutely speaks to people who are, uh, have smaller sized bodies than mine, who feel uh, a real struggle with their own body image, the way that they think about their own body. What that doesn't actually do is do anything to change the material conditions that have created those feelings about their bodies, right? And it also continues to tell me that even when we're talking about feeling better about your body, you don't actually qualify. You're still too fat to feel okay about your body, right? That Real Beauty campaign, I would say, just based on my own recollection, probably stopped the sizes that they included at like a 16 or an 18. No one had rolls, no one had cellulite, no one uh, had any kind of body shape that did anything other than reinforce very reductive gender norms, right? Like hourglass bodies, as far as the eye can see, Uh, There would be older people, but they would only get as old as like 60. There were no uh, people who either discussed having disabilities or had any visible mobility aids or any other markers of disability. There were Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color involved, but there was quite a bit of colorism present in the casting, right? That all of these things are sort of um, to me, symbolic of moving the goalposts of the beauty standard, but not fundamentally challenging it, and not fundamentally calling into question where that beauty standard comes from and who it serves. Which Dove ads were never going to do that because the beauty standard serves Dove, right? They sell things for skincare, they sell things that are labeled with like anti aging and things that are right, like all of that kind of stuff. Uh. Of course, they weren't going to start that kind of critical conversation. But the trick is that that was a wider stage for talking about body image um, than any of the sort of related movements had ever had. So body positivity as a movement, again, rooted in fat acceptance, rooted in fat activism and liberation, was suddenly flooded with people who had only seen these TV ads and thought – well, body positivity is about feeling better about myself, and I need to feel better about myself. But hang on, there are some fat people here, and I don't want to be lumped in with them. So body positivity is really for people who are happy and healthy, and you can look at them until that they're not healthy, without really realizing that they were pointing at the people who had started the movement that they were now claiming and benefiting from.
0: One of the other things that you point out in that chapter that I think is really important is that like, you're not actually required to be happy or healthy to deserve respect in the world. Like, you, you can be sad, you can have type 2 diabetes, like, you can have a chronic illness, and you can also be working on those things as, as part of your life. And at the same time, you deserve medical care. Um, you know, not to be shamed when you are, are walking around in a bathing suit, all of that stuff.
2: Yeah, uh, people with depression and anxiety and bipolar and whatever other things uh, also deserve to feel okay in their bodies and also deserve to be treated as people who are okay in their bodies, right? Uh, I don't know about you. When I have been deep in a depression, it doesn't really help me to to have a lot of people telling me that I'm not allowed to feel okay about my body, right? Like that's not a super therapeutic vibe for me, right? If you want or need to feel better about your body, you should feel better about your body and we should be creating the conditions that make that possible. And right now, we're just kind of telling people to feel better about their bodies without really creating the conditions that would allow them to actually do that.
0: I'm curious, in a perfect world, like, when you go to the Dove website, what would you see? Like, how would <laughs> advertisers advertise their soap? Like, do you think that they would have more inclusive campaigns or, like, what, what would that look like?
2: I don't know that I need anything in particular out of Dove's advertising campaigns aside from... Not claiming the work of movements that they don't understand, right? Like, honestly, if I were designing websites for, like, any corporation, I'd be like, Dove, we sell soap. Do you need soap? It's here. Right? Like, the end. (laughs) (laughs) Sephora, we've got makeup. What kind of makeup do you want? Here it is. Great. Right? (laughs) Like, all of that kind of stuff would be great. I think there's something really pernicious about corporations claiming to be movements, which was a big trend of the 2010s, right? That sort of everything was join the movement, buy a razor from us, join the movement, buy a mattress from us, join the movement. Um, and in this case, there was an actual sort of co-opting of an existing social justice movement that happened in a in a very sort of concentrated way from a number of corporate interests who sought to profit by selling products that undercut the movement. I mean, I think the other big example of that one is Halo Top, which bizarrely advertises itself as it is a, you know, a pint of ice cream that advertises itself as you should eat the whole pint. It's only X number of calories. It's sort of designed to be binged. Um, And they have had a wave of ads that are like, don't let people push you around. You should have what you want and what you want is our ice cream that is half air (laughs) and um, chicory root fiber and whatever else. Right. Um, And that's another case of sort of co-opting this idea of, you know, food freedom or um, embracing your body or whatever in the service of selling you a diet food. So how much is it telling you to embrace your body? Right. Like question mark.
0: I find all of this, like, really interesting when it collides with, like, Instagram influencers who are not corporations but are selling us stuff but are also living their lives. But, like, in this, like, performative way designed to, like, get you to click on their Amazon affiliate links. So I'm wondering if, like, if you have any recommendations for someone who says, like, oh, well, like, I follow a lot of, like, body positivity influencers and, like, I I don't know, like, I guess part of my question is like is that good or okay and like maybe the answer there is like well like it's instagram <laughs> like everything's going to have something wrong with it but would you would you have any recommendations for that until like maybe engage in the actual movement more thoughtfully
2: a couple of things one is i think there's something that happens when folks exclusively opt into the parts of the conversations about Uh, fatness and fat justice and liberation and also body positivity, where they just opt into the parts that are about how you feel about your own body. And that becomes their lens for viewing the rest of the world, right? Um, So that is um, a kind of person who's sort of steeped in that messaging is also the kind of person who... If I go to the doctor and have a doctor who at 350 pounds refuses to examine me or refuses to touch me, which has absolutely happened to me, um, I have had friends who were deeply steeped in the body image part of body positivity say, well, you just need to love yourself. I totally hear you. I've had bad body image days, too, which is a really different thing than this person with power over me in really distinct ways refuse to meet my needs. And I don't really have any recourse for that. Right. Me loving myself doesn't change that doctor's existing bias. So I would say to folks who are following exclusively um, people who don't wear plus sizes, uh, who consider themselves to be body positive, I would say, Add some fat people to that list, right? Um, I would encourage folks to read the works of uh, other fat writers. I think Roxane Gay's Hunger is absolutely extraordinary. I think Deshaun Harrison's Belly of the Beast is absolutely phenomenal, right? That taking some steps into a better understanding of um, where the concept of body positivity comes from, but also... What are the sort of social messages and the institutional messages that are telling you that you shouldn't feel good about your body? Because those are actually things we can change. And the problem there isn't that your brain is just refusing to love your body. The problem there is every day you wake up and are bombarded with messages about what kinds of bodies are acceptable to see and to look at, what kinds of bodies can't be seen, can't be treated with respect, um, and all of us, through no necessary fault of our own, just sort of sop that up through osmosis and figure out how to replicate it. Um, so, I would say tuning into more fat people and reading the work of more fat people um, and more disabled people and more trans people should be like a really essential part uh, of that journey um, for any number of folks. Generally, um listening to and lifting up folks who have more marginalized identities or different life experiences than our own I think is like a really good growth experience and really important to building movements that last.
0: You've already recommended a couple books, but you make a point of recommending a whole list of books in your book. Um so I'm wondering if you could leave our listeners with one or two more authors that they should check out after they read your book.
2: Yes. Uh, I would say uh, Sabrina Strings, who's a sociology professor, has written a book called Fearing the Black Body about the very deep historical links between anti-blackness and anti-fatness. Um, I would say uh, if you are looking for young adult novels, Julie Murphy, if you need some fiction in your life, uh, has written a number of wonderful young adult novels about fat kids and particularly fat girls and teens that are absolutely wonderful. Um, And I would say uh, Sonia Renee Taylor uh, has written an absolutely extraordinary book several years ago. Now it's on its second edition called The Body is Not an Apology. That is absolutely worth your time. Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my God. Truly such a dream. Truly anytime. This was like an absolute joy. And, of course, our listeners can order your book. It officially comes
0: out on January 7th. We'll put a link in the show notes for them. The book title, again, is You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. Also, I want to let listeners know that if they enjoyed this conversation, they might enjoy checking out my new column. It's called Good Fit. It's all about exercise, and the first installment is Why Exercise Doesn't Need to Be About Health. That's available on Slate right now, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that, too. And that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shannon Roth. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer of Audio. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We would love to hear from you. Email us at at thewavesatslate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Often, um, the conceit of our Slate Plus segments is often is this feminist, and we say it in a very tongue-in-cheek way. So I think we we know going into this conversation that we know we know Ozempic is not feminist. Um, but I, I I think that um, you know I don't even know if I can cram it into the framework this time. But it, it's something that's been on um, my mind a lot lately, just because anytime I see a story about it. I don't think I've been getting ads for it, but, you know, it's popped up on Instagram. I just kind of react in horror, and I am excited to chat with you a little bit about it in the framework of your book. For folks who um, are are living in a world where they have not heard about this drug, um,
2: first of all, can I come join you? Uh... Yeah, if you've been living in that world, turn off this podcast right now and continue your blissful ignorance (laughs) of this utter garbage. Yes, I'm totally with you. So Ozempic is a
0: shot um, that, well, we don't have to go into all of the details, but basically it's a shot that was designed uh, to to treat um, type 2 diabetes and is now being used off-label to help people lose weight. And What was your reaction when you first heard about this? Um, It's being kind of like sold as like this miracle thing or this new thing. Did it sound new to you or just like same, same shit new rapper?
2: No, it sounded to me. So I'll talk about two things. One is sort of what it sounded like and then what it is. Um what it sounded like to me was like the new miracle drug question mark um was sort of much of the media coverage around the launch of Ozempic and uh Wegovy is another brand name for the same thing they're both semaglutides um uh and it sounded to me I mean, the new miracle drug question mark was the cover of either Time or Newsweek uh, around FenFen Fen in the 90s. And folks who remember FenFen Fen remember that that is the one prescription diet drug uh, that uh, was pulled from the shelves in the 90s because it stopped people's hearts. Uh, it was approved on a fast track and killed people. To me, when we get this spun up about a weight loss drug this early, it's usually a bad sign because it means that people will get more attached to the fantasy of weight loss, which statistically we know that most weight loss efforts fail um, and many lead to future weight gain directly as a result of attempting to lose weight, right? Um, So what that means to me is that we're setting ourselves up for a Fen Fen style thing, not I'm not saying that uh, any of these drugs will kill people. What I'm saying is we're setting ourselves up to get so attached to this fantasy that even when there's evidence that the fantasy might not be working out or might not be as safe as we think for everyone, we continue to pursue it. The other thing I would say about Ozempic and Wegovi and all of this sort of class of semaglutides is... Um, these are medications that were developed for people with type two diabetes to manage their blood sugar. And if you don't manage your blood sugar, and if you don't have the medication you need to do that, there are a number of like really alarming long-term health impacts of not managing your blood sugar in the way that you need to. And the off-label, um, prescribing of semaglutide for weight loss means that there is now a shortage for people who actually have type 2 diabetes
0: right that was just some of our slate plus segment if you want to hear the whole thing go to slate.com slash plus to become a slate plus member today slate.com slash plus
2: this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on